my personal um, focus in this work really is how do we make sure that our health interventions align with adolescents' own values and priorities? And so for me, it's about what exactly is motivating to them and drives their behavior. Um, most of our mm, mm, sort of traditional um, interventions are very much focused on goal setting and planning and you know providing health information, all of which um, is important but all of which also assumes that A, they don't already, they don't know what healthy means. And B, once they do know what healthy means and why it's important to be healthy, they will immediately be motivated to do it. And both of these are not true. Uh, so based on the, the many, many, many discussions that I've had with adolescents in each B, they know what healthy means. They know they should be eating vegetables and fruits and they know they should be, you know, being active and not eating junk food and sitting in front of the TV. They know that all of this and they know that the repercussions of that is avoiding diabetes in the future and being healthy when they're grown ups. But that isn't what's important to them in the here and now. So not only are they not ignorant about it, they um, they are they're, they're also motivated by other things. So for me, the question is, what are what are the big motivating factors for them and how do we um, use those or harness those when we design health interventions um, to support them in changing behavior? That is the incredible guest for this episode, Dr. Sophia Strommer. Uh, she is a psychologist and in the early part of the episode, uh, she goes into her background that includes two master's degrees before uh, she does her PhD. Um, for most of the episode, though, we talk about uh, an intervention trial she's working on called EACHB. EACHB stands for Engaging Adolescents in Changing Behavior. And so we talk about some of the components of that. Um, it's a trial that blends experiential learning with behavior support and technology. Uh, we also talk about some of the underlying philosophies uh, as part of that, that trial, which include uh, self-determination theory and social cognitive theory. And then near the end of the episode, uh, she goes into why she's focusing on adolescence. And uh, near the very end of the episode, uh, Sophia talks about poop samples. So if you're curious, then uh, uh, stay tuned for that. Um, overall, I had a ton of fun chatting with Sophia and uh, creating this episode. Um, I hope you really enjoy it. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the Youth Wellness and Performance Podcast. Here it is. The first thing to do is to introduce yourself, if that's okay. And okay. Uh, I'll just have you introduce your background and what you're doing now. Okay. Hi. Uh, so my name is Sophia Stroma, and I am originally from Finland, but currently live in the UK. Uh, I'm a psychologist and I currently work at the Medical Research Council Life Course Epidemiology Unit, which is a complete mouthful. Uh, but essentially, I work with um, interventions to do with supporting adolescent health. Perfect. What What's the path to psychology or what was your path to psycho psychology? Um, <clears throat> well, I was in school <laughs> considering everything from being a hairdresser to being a neurosurgeon and I think it was my mom actually who originally said 
I think you'd be interested in psychology or you'd really like it because you're interested in people. Um, and so it was through her encouragement that I then took up a bachelor's uh, degree in psychology and neuroscience. I also, at the same time, applied for stuff like uh, biosciences and um, and other things like that. So more definitely more sciencey things. But in the end, I think I'm I'm actually really happy that I ended up going down the psychology um, route. Uh, so I did my undergrad in psychology and neuroscience, and then uh, after that, my journey in education has really been one of like exploration. So at the end of each um, sort of chapter. I sort of asked myself, well, what do I feel like I don't know enough about yet? And then that led me to the next step. So I ended up doing two master's degrees. The first one was in counseling psychology because I really wanted to understand more about how to work with people in a therapeutic setting. And then I felt like I didn't really understand very much about the more clinical aspects of that work. So I did a clinical psychology master's. Finally, um, building on the second master's, I continued to do a PhD in um, exercise motivation. So it was a psychology PhD with a health focus. Mm -hmm. um, and that has led me here. Uh, but what's interesting is, had you asked me during my undergrad what I was going to end up doing, I would have said absolutely not health psychology and absolutely not working with adolescents, which is exactly what I'm doing now. And I completely love it. That's amazing. Did you have a different path in mind? What, what were you thinking in undergrad? Um, I think I was definitely thinking more of I'm going to be some sort of therapist, really effective, you know, high paid, like seeing clients every day kind of therapist or uh, or maybe a clinical psychologist. But then the path just takes you down some interesting roads and you find yourself somewhere and you go, this was exactly where I was meant to be. And I don't even know how I got here, but somehow I'm really happy about it. Yeah, that's incredible. And Let's go into your current research setup a little bit more. So what does that look like? So um, I'm currently working on a big intervention trial called EACHB. And EACHB stands for Engaging Adolescents in Changing Behavior. And this is um, a trial that's just about to start. So we've spent the last two years doing a lot of work to actually develop the form and content of this trial and really trying to make sure that we've We've um, made it together with our target audience, the young people themselves. Um, and so we're just about to start our first baseline testing, actually, for the full intervention. But in short, each B is a three component intervention. So it combines um, a, a program of experiential learning that is that takes place here at the hospital where I work um, and behavioral support from teachers for the students and finally um, a technology component so we've developed a mobile game together with some game designers and so that's also something that's incorporated into it to make it um, to make health behaviors more fun and sociable and interactive so um, that's basically what we'll be doing with them in the next year very exciting wow. yeah that's super exciting which hospital are you at so the Medical Research Council unit where I work at the moment is based in Southampton. So we're officially under Southampton University and based at the Southampton General Hospital in the UK. So this is basically where Titanic left from. <laughs> wow, I had no idea. Now you do. <laughs> now I do. <laughs> um, and the, so the behavioral support, that's for teachers and students. 
Is that right? So the behavioral support is um, is a training package that we deliver to the teachers. So the teachers are trained in healthy conversation skills, but the aim of the training is to equip them with skills to support their students um, in a in a very sort of empowerment focused way to think about their own lives and how they could. Uh, be healthier, improve their lives in general, be more active, eat better foods. So the idea is that by training the teachers, they are then better equipped to um, to be there for the adolescents when and if they need someone they trust to talk to about this within the school setting. Um, the, the adolescents want to do this sort of with their friends, but they do want some sort of support for it. And they've told us within this two years of development work that that person needs to be someone they already have a relationship with and that they already trust. And the teachers are sort of an obvious person to do this through. Um, but what they also told us is that their teachers need to be approaching this the right way. So the adolescents don't want to be told what to do by their teachers. And often their relationship is that sort of didactic um, you know, teacher-student kind of relationship. So this training aims to shift that a little bit. Interesting. So the what 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 does the training look like on a on a I guess day to day basis? Is it it's group training or one on one with the teachers? Uh, yeah. So the training is delivered um, in a group. So the teachers sort of come in as a group and they um, get trained in a in a in some other things as well related to this. Um, educational component of each but incorporated into that day is the health conversation skills training and it's basically in um, quite practical communication tools that you can use to explore someone's world and empower them to set their own goals and plan um, and it's really through open what we call open discovery questions so these would be the how and what questions um, and then uh, building those uh, or well rather supporting the uh, other person in this case the adolescents to form their own sort of smarter goals. So they, we want them to be quite structured and achievable and timed and, and all this other stuff, but doing that through asking questions rather than telling them what to do. Right. Hmm. Mm. Uh, okay. And so the, let's go into the, 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 the game a little bit. So tell me more about the game and why it's, or, um, how how you're making it more fun and accessible right <laughs> what's so special about this game that yeah. you're doing yeah. um so this has been the the most fun component for me out of the whole uh, development work and this intervention because i am a little bit of a gamer myself mm-hmm. um and so i ended up being and i say that like very tentatively like i'm not in any way uh an expert or a huge gamer like i just there's a couple of games i play and i like it but because of this, I then became the liaison person between our team and our game design team who are based in Glasgow, um, Scotland. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so this whole process has been through uh, working together with young people to identify what exactly is uh, interesting to them in this game and testing it throughout with them. So uh, we've had a series of game jams, for example, where young people have created characters and the the task would, was to create this character at level zero and have them level up to about level 30. And what does that transition look like for this character? Um, and this really gave us an idea about how they view themselves and how they view their peers and what role um, health plays in that. So they sort of knew that the game was going to be about health and all of their characters, like for the boys, they really 
beef up to level 30. It's really, it was amazing. <laughs> like they just all wanted to just like beef up and build all these muscles. And um, a lot of them, for a lot of them, it was actually about being clumsy and then becoming less clumsy over time. So just usual stuff that you could expect and you can probably remember going through as an adolescent. So it was about having shiny hair and, you know, looking a certain way, but, but also just about being strong and confident in yourself. Um, then... So to complement the co-creation process, we also brought in, we have psychologists and nutritionists on the project, and we brought in what we know from psychology theory and nutrition um, evidence to really sort of uh, give an evidence base for this game. So we've incorporated some behavior change techniques. We've incorporated um, theoretical frameworks like the self-determination theory, which is one of the main motivation theories, and social cognitive theory, uh, which revolves really for, well, the main focus of which for us is the self-efficacy. So how much do you feel able to do something? Mm. So our mobile game um, has three main domains within it. So it has diet components, it has physical activity components, and it has components to do with um, environmental awareness, so really drawing young people's attentions to the things around them, like um, fast food advertisements and um, social media influences, and um, and food uh, locations in supermarkets. So where are they putting all the unhealthy foods, um, and you know how many of those are on offer at each time, and this kind of thing that that isn't necessarily stuff we'd normally pay attention to. Uh, the diet components of the game uh, are really to do with trying to encourage young people to try new foods. So trying new fruits and vegetables, adding them to the things they're already eating, taking on some challenges about eating five different nuts in a week, provided they're not allergic to them. Um, but it has some uh, some gamey components as well, which really highlight um, in, a, in a subtle way the connections between what you're eating and how you're feeling. So we have a little alien called Gutsy, and basically by doing this sort of connect for kind of game, you can feed Gutsy good things, and then Gutsy feels good. Um, you don't really want to want to feed Gutsy bad things because that would be very mean. Uh, the physical activity components are uh, some quite gamified things. So it, it includes um, sort of at home exercises, but also uh, quest based um, adventure game, which. Uh, in which you go around in your physical environment a little bit like Pokemon Go and you kill some monsters and you just move around basically. And finally, uh, the environmental awareness part of it is also a story-based adventure game where you are um, taken on this uh, adventure where your friend is kidnapped and you need to go and save them and they've been kidnapped by the big bad um, food company who is trying to you know, manipulate you to do, do things like buy unhealthy foods that they're selling. And so you have to gather some evidence from your environment on how they're doing this exactly um, and then to fight them to get your friend back. I think that's about it. Perfect. Something that you mentioned there actually just made me think of um, a, 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 a different topic but I think related uh, mm. on intuitive eating. So the term yeah. intuitive eating. And so I guess I'm just curious, how good do you think we are, or maybe adolescents are specifically at um, connecting our emotions and moods and feelings to the foods that we're eating? Or what do you think the relationship is there? I think that um, that relationship has gotten quite messed up actually. I think that we don't really think of the relationship as being what I'm eating to what I'm feeling, but the other way around. 
So it's sort of flipped on its head and it's become about how I'm feeling and what I want to eat in response to that. So often it's about feeling really anxious and stressed it will make you um, either not want to eat anything or it's sort of sometimes uh, young people might feel like that's the only thing they can control and that might lead to some unhealthy habits of skipping meals and not eating things as much as they should. Um, on the other side of it, it might be that feeling, um, you know, saddened, uh, disconnected from people and anxious and things might make you want to eat things that are not good for you in a, in a way to self-soothe, um, I suppose. So from my perspective, and this, you know, other people might disagree with this, it's often that relationship that is happening more often than us actually being quite aware of um, what we eat influencing those emotional states because that requires quite a lot of um, uh, introspective ability you know like taking and 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 also I think our bodies tend to uh, crave things as well when we're not feeling very well or when we're feeling tired and and exhausted um so so it almost tricks us into thinking about it that way but my um my impression is also from the work that we've done with the young people that for them um the social influence is huge in their food choices so even if they were aware of um healthy food equals you know healthy mind it's incredibly hard to do when you really just want to spend time with your friends and spend what little money you have um, on things to things with your friends and everyone wants to go to KFC. Uh, so what do you do? Like you don't, you're not going to be the person who goes there and doesn't have anything or has a salad. I don't even know if you can get a salad there, but you know, it, it's so socially dissentient. You're not going to do it. So it's, it's, um, it's a relationship that's been obstructed and just, just sort of, uh camouflaged by so many other things that it it's quite hard to get back to that intuitive eating or the idea of it um, when the environment is just not conducive to that mm -hmm. um just going back into the underlying philosophies so self-determination theory and the second one was cognitive behavioral uh social cognitive social theory. cognitive theory okay yep. so um uh, self-determination theory can you explain a little bit more about what's involved in that yeah so uh, self-determination theory is a framework of about of motivation really and um, it incorporates a, a number of mini theories within it but the main premise of it is that uh, as humans we can be motivated on a spectrum from really externally motivated or a motivated and not interested in anything at all um, which is basically um, being told, well, a motivated is obviously not being motivated in the slightest, but then externally motivated means you're doing something because someone else is telling you to do that thing. So you're sort of feeling a bit like guilt tripped into it or just sort of oppressed, I suppose, and you have to do it because someone's telling you to do that. On the other end of the spectrum, we have um, completely intrinsic or autonomous forms of motivation, which are internal to you. So this is doing something out of pure joy of doing that activity so you get thrills and and endorphins and you absolutely love it and you feel amazing when you're doing it and in between there there's you know different levels of how internalized your motivation is so you can also you can sort of move along this axis but it's not necessarily a smooth transition you can sort of be anywhere on it um and the the 
the uh, basic elements of this theory that are important to us are really the three basic psychological needs that are outlined by self-determination theory. So these are autonomy, competence and relatedness. And it basically just suggests that we all have these same psychological needs. And if those needs are fulfilled by whatever we're doing, then we will be more likely to have the autonomous intrinsic forms of motivation. And where those needs are not fulfilled by something, we're going to be less likely to be motivated um, to do it, or we will be more likely to be externally motivated to do it because we have to do it. And um, things like health behaviors, or eating really healthily and exercising, like, like you're being a responsible person and, you know, very structured and you have your life together is, um, can be for some people, uh, not necessarily something that fulfills all of those needs. And for young people, particularly, um, exercise and diet stuff is usually things that other people are telling you, you have to do. And so for them, it's not really making them feel like they're making these decisions for themselves. It's not fulfilling autonomy. It's not making them feel like they're connecting with other people which is the relatedness part because their friends want to go eat junk food and they're being asked to do something that they're not always good at. So, you know, you're asking, you're being, being asked to do football in PE and you're really not good at it. So it's going to be terrible and you don't feel competent at it either. So we're trying to flip this on its head and um, fulfill these um, needs through this intervention. So as to give rise to more autonomous forms of motivation. Right. Yeah. So talking a lot no that's <laughs> that's great that's exactly what i want <laughs> so we can all learn no more about want it me, want to listen to me just go <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. so some examples of of those needs or putting those, some of those needs into context so if i was exercising uh with the goal sorry I, my dog is also running around and sometimes he's Sometimes he's making noises, so I'm just giving him lots of treats. <laughs> so Aww. he's going to be super happy by the end of this. Um, I think he should join the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah get him, I'll get him on as a guest. Um, so uh, putting some of those needs into, into context. Um, so if I was exercising um, with the purpose of losing weight yeah. and weight loss was driving it, mm -hmm. would that be an intrinsic... Or sorry, extrinsic. Um, would that be an extrinsic form of motivation because it's the weight loss that's driving it, as opposed to I'm just going out with some friends just for a pickup game of soccer, just because we all love soccer? Would that be a difference or an example of a difference? Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good example of a difference. So um, there have been there's been research into different motives for um, exercising, and this is a very confusing sort of terminology with motives and motivation. But basically, the idea is that different reasons or motives for exercising um, give rise to different kinds of motivation. And like you said, weight loss and appearance focused reasons for doing it are often ones that are quite externally motivating. And, and they are the most common reasons for starting something like this, so starting exercising and eating well. Um, the problem is that those reasons alone or those motives alone will not take you um, to a sustainable lifestyle of being active and eating well. So it's not to say that it's not a good reason. It's a perfectly valid reason, and it's a reason people often have to start. But what it means is that we need to then, over time, try and cultivate other reasons. 
So come, so find other benefits that we're getting from it. Find other ways of in, or other things that we're enjoying within it. So this might be, um, you know, being active with someone else, so bringing a friend with you when you're going for a walk, or doing something a bit more sociable and fun, like for example, dancing salsa or something else. So finding things that make it more than just about the weight loss. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So you're you're tying in the uh, relatedness into just getting somebody else yeah. in there. Um, so that well, that's you're... one way. I mean, you, you could find other ways of making it um, personally enjoyable and rewarding for you. So for some people, that would be the social aspect. For others, it might be just being out in nature and feeling connected to nature. Um, and it could be based on, for example, the research I did in my PhD. It can. It's also quite a lot about how you feel when you're doing an activity. So if you're doing an activity and you feel like you're really not good at it, it's quite unlikely that you're going to keep going with it, even if it does result in weight loss. So you then need to find something that you do feel like, yes, I can cultivate these skills and actually become better at it, or that I'm quite naturally already okay at this. Like walking is quite easy for most right. people. Right. Hmm. Um, is there a level of, of difficulty that is helpful in that? I know um in the past i've heard conversations about if you want someone to feel like it, like they're good at something but it also when there's a level of difficulty they have a greater sense of accomplishment almost when they do achieve uh a yeah. goal is that does that play a role here yeah i think it does and it's a it's a difficult balance to strike but I do definitely think there's um there's there's a sense of progression that needs to happen, or I think this uh, sense of competence comes in some way of from a sense of mastery, right. but the, it needs to be at the right amount. Um, so it's like an eighty twenty kind of rule, or maybe it's a little bit less than that. Actually, probably for this is maybe seventy thirty. So uh, if you know part of the time you're outside your comfort zone and you're being challenged, that's fine. But most of the time, actually, you need to feel like you're actually good at it and you're competent at it. So um, the problem comes in when people make a behavior change, um, which you know might be motivated by the, the desire to lose weight, for example, or to look a certain way. This is a typical New Year's resolution kind of situation. They also then try to go all in and they do everything at once and they wanna go to the gym every day and they wanna be you know full on clean eating or vegan or whatever. And it's, a big bite to take all in one mm -hmm. so it can easily lead to feelings of like uh well then defeat and just over overwhelmedness um so so there's a there's a balance to be struck with uh starting small and taking small steps that are manageable for you but also um challenging yourself a little bit so that you do get that sense of mastery as you go along not a very easy answer i'm afraid right yeah, it makes me think of, so when I was coaching, I, um, the first year, the focus was really just on the competition, and that was going to be the point where we all felt success, as opposed to, um, after, over time, I realized that there could be, I, and you mentioned this uh, during our last conversation, um, just small successes of, just mm -hmm. during the process of, it, it's, we could celebrate new rowers just getting on the water for the first time like that was that could be that's a huge deal mm. um and then i think that overall that was i don't know maybe more motivating but um yeah so does the does the the game the mobile game create those small successes too 
Yes. So the idea behind it is that you do um, short spurts of activity. So the story for the physical activity component is that there's a guy called Bobby and Bobby is a procrastinator. <laughs> and, and in his attempt to procrastinate, he sort of messed up some things and accidentally released some monsters into the world. And these monsters are um, are basically releasing this gas into the world, which makes people really sleepy and tired. So he was trying to be a good scientist and actually find a way to overcome this procrastination, but it's all just backfired horribly. And so all these monsters are now out there making people feel really tired and, and lethargic and, and it's awful. So Bobby needs to go, your help, Bobby needs to go out there and kill these monsters and bring them back in and suck him up like Ghostbuster style, right? Um, and you need to help him. So, so you have mini missions where you have uh, little clouds of um, this fog on a map and you have to move around your map to these different places. And when you're there, you play a mini game where you basically kill the monsters and save the people. Um, and so they, the, the single activities of going to one place and killing a monster like isn't too difficult to do. It's walking distance from you. It's, um, it's not a very long way. It's couple of hundred meters maybe but if you do multiple of those in a row you get extra experience points you get um, feedback within the game about how you've done it does it tracks your the distance traveled overall um, although it doesn't uh, track like geolocation per se with where people where young people are we um, definitely don't want to do that yeah. but um, so it, it does sort of accu accumulate your um, achievement over time and there will be like timed challenges where if you do this and this many in 10 minutes or half an hour then you get so and so many extra experience points and you unlock some new content and things like this so there's um, small things you can do but then there's ways of building those up into something that's a bit more rewarding and a bit more a bigger achievement if you will and so with technology are you um so this is all the the benefits of using the, the mobile um game and, and then using technology is uh, is there any risks that you are concerned about um uh, with the with maybe in, even just in, encouraging the use of technology through adolescence mm. so um yeah it's a it's a difficult thing to again like a balance to strike isn't it because on the other hand on the one hand it's something they use every day on the other hand it's something they use all the time every day so um it's definitely uh a, something that parents can be quite concerned about is if their adolescents are using technology a lot and actually get them getting their phone off them so the the positive side of an app like this i suppose is that they're using their phone for something quite productive and healthy um the downside of technology is you know when it's encouraging more sedentary behaviors but also the use of social media that can be quite damaging for young adolescents who are very sort of socially motivated and susceptible to emotional um, influences and um but when it comes to developing an app like this the one thing that we particularly well several things but um the prime primary things that we had to really think about when we were developing this was how do we deal with photos how do we um, allow for social connectivity which is what the young people wanted in a way that's that doesn't make it easy for them to bully each other or 
um, you know, just, just abuse it in some way? And how do we develop a health app that doesn't encourage um, then unhealthy health behaviors? So going sort of too far the other way. And these were conversations that we were having throughout. We decided we didn't we didn't want to do any um, photos of people. So we allow them or we ask them to take photos of foods and things in their environment. And of course, the, the problem is we can't really control what they're taking photos of, but it doesn't ask them to take photos of themselves in any situation. Um, and uh, the social connectivity stuff, again, we had lots of conversations about that. And there's mechanisms that we've had to put in place to make sure they can report um, inappropriate use of the app. Um, but, uh, and, but ultimately, other than that, we have to hope uh, for the best that they right. do it as intended. And, and there are just things that are beyond our control a little bit, but it's definitely something that requires a lot of conversation within um, the team when you're developing something like this. And then the final point was about encouraging unhealthy health behaviors. Um, and that was actually a big decision that we made not to allow uh, actual sort of food tracking or body weight tracking within the app. Um, so as not to really encourage sort of excessive focus on that aspect. And at no point does the app itself talk about weight loss as a goal um, uh, because we just didn't want to take that tone and we didn't want that to be the focus. The, fo the focus is to try fun and uh, exciting ways to eat new foods and to be active. Hmm. Um, I have another question, but I'm going to quickly put my dog outside because <laughs> he's getting I can, I can hear him trying to play with you. Yeah, he's just so excited. I'll be right back. Yeah, I have a quick question, super... actually. Yes. I was on your website, and there's a picture of you and your dog. Yeah. And it's adorable. Um, what kind of dog is it? He's a mix between a Border Collie and a Blue Healer. Amazing. Yeah. Does he run well? He runs you very well. for runs or anything? Yes. Yeah, he's a yeah. very good runner. Yeah. Um, he's so excited. We were just um, at the forest earlier today, actually. But um, he loves running through the woods on the trails. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. See, I'm, I'm such a dog person. And my partner is um, a big, like, he's big on running. And I'm like, we will get a dog. Like, we're going to get a dog one day. And he's like, fine, we can get a dog if I can take the dog for like 10 mile runs or whatever, you know, 10, 15 kilometer runs. And I'm like, fine, okay, so we just need to find a breed that's quite happy to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think some sort of border collie mix probably is the best way forward, to be honest. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. They're very good runners. I mean, they try to do some herding every now and then of people <laughs> and other dogs, but for the most part, they're yeah. good. Yeah. Um, he's. Bless. Probably just gonna wait. I'll be right back. Well, sorry, I'm just gonna just see. <laughs> okay, so let's see if I can remember the question. I think the 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 next question I had was on the other underlying philosophy of the social cognitive theory. Yeah. And I was just curious about that and if you can define that a little bit more. So social cognitive theory. Um, is kind of like a triangle framework, which um, 
is just about understanding people's um, personal characteristics or sort of stuff that's going on for you personally, internally, uh, things in your environment and then your social influences. Um, and I wish I had it in front of me somewhere so I could speak to it in a, more, in a bit more detail. But basically, the component of the social cognitive theory that is uh, most important to us is a concept called self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is basically your um, personal belief in your ability to do something. It's kind of like, how much control do I have over this and how able do I feel in, um, in being able to do this? And um, so motivation and self-efficacy for us go hand in hand it doesn't matter how motivated you are if something's beyond your control and you can't actually do it then no matter how motivated you are it's not going to happen and vice versa um even if you believe you can do it and it's completely within your control unless you're motivated to do it you're not going to take action so they are in our in our view they're so interlinked that both of them need to be incorporated into this kind of behavior change intervention that's trying to support people to um change behavior in some way that enough detail yeah that's great so and then the some of the the um other things that you've mentioned a couple of times was g giving young people a voice, involving them in the process. Um, can you go into how you're doing that? So um, for us, it's incredibly important to, uh, as researchers who design interventions to support adolescent health, to not just sit in our ivory towers and sort of decide on our own without any input from anybody what those interventions need to be they will never work that way. So we believe very much in involving our target population, in this case, the adolescents from the get-go. And we also believe that it's it's partly our job to try and give them a voice in matters that pertain to them. So uh, this looks, well, this uh, manifests in a number of ways. So for one, we have a young people's PPI group, which is a patient and public involvement group. So we have a young people's PPI group who um, advise on all of the uh, research and clinical trials going on in this in the hospital we work at um, that pertain some way to adolescents. So they um, review information sheets and consent forms and logos and plans for research. So they their input is important to to all aspects of that research. On our project specifically, we've consulted our PPI group, but we've also, um, in the two years of development work, we've involved adolescents from the get-go. So we've done um, extensive inter interviews with adolescents. We've um, developed questionnaires together with adolescents to make sure they're understandable, all of it's acceptable to them. Um, we've done all of these game jams as more creative ways of involving adolescents. And really, we want to know from them what is important to you guys. Um, are we doing what we should be doing with this? Um, what's missing from it? How can we make it better? Um, so in, in doing this research, we really want to enable them to have a say in what that research looks like and what sort of things we bring to the fore. Um, so how do we make sure it's aligned with their values and their priorities? Um, and really, actually, part of it is also then how we disseminate that work. So doing things like this podcast with you and what, whatever other public engagement work we do, um, making sure that actually 
we're not speaking just for ourselves, but we're also kind of advocates for the young people we've worked with um, and that we're, we're doing this intervention for. Um, so part of this is, is to just highlight those issues that are of importance to them rather than just talking about our work and how accomplished we are. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> what do you think the best way to disseminate this information to adolescents is? That's, that's a big question, but yeah. It's a very good question. And one that I think uh, we as researchers don't actually think about enough. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really hard to, to, to know how to disseminate this to adolescents effectively because it's, um, you know, this is still a grown up world and it's, it can feel very far away from uh, a young person's world. Uh, what are we doing? So we're basically trying to do as much public engagement as we possibly can. So there are university open days, science days, um, doing things like, like this podcast and just tweeting about it. Um, we, I don't, and this is where I don't know if we have our, um, you know, social media presence in the right, in all of the right places, but, um, but at least trying to get out there in as many ways as we can. We work together with schools to recruit and to do the research. So we also try to go through schools then when we disseminate what we found out. So we try to, um, to uh, showcase the outcomes of our work um, at school events and different things like that, if we can. Um, as I mentioned to you on Monday, uh, I'm recently, I've recently become involved in this project um, where we're asking young people to create their own short films about the topic of climate change and diet and how that relates to them, how they view it. And as a part of that, we've we've planned into this work a showcase event that we're going to put on to um, show the short films and for the young people themselves to have a, have an opportunity to talk about how it was being involved and what the films are about and sort of so they can also um, be involved in this sort of dissemination work as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think that's, but, I think it's important to involve them and in, in, to involve adolescents. I mean, that's the group that um, we're trying to uh, uh, create change, affect change with. And so um, I think it's important to involve them in the, in the process of trying to disseminate the information that is mm. involves them back to them. So yes. uh, yeah. but it's a challenge. It is, but a challenge that we need to, we need to take on and tackle actually. Because you're right, like we we can't. Um, it's sort of I don't know how to put this. Like it feels somehow wrong that we're working with this adolescent with this with this group of young people. Um, it would feel really wrong to work with this group of young people and not involve them, and then also not tell them about what we've found out, how we've analyzed the data, what we've concluded from the data they've given us it would just feel really inappropriate somehow. Um, and so for us, it just feels natural that we need to be trying our best at least to involve them at all stages mm -hmm. and to also feed back to them the things that we've um, done with the data they've given us. Um, particularly with this sort of age group, they can often be uh, overlooked in research, but also in the world. Um, they can be underestimated in some ways. and. And sort of, um, uh, there's. It's quite easy for people to think, oh, they're adolescents, and you know, they don't, they don't think sensibly, and they just do ridiculous things and and whatnot, you know, and just sort of put them down a little bit. And 
you know, what's more disempowering than someone taking that attitude towards you? So uh, partly for that reason that this is a this can be quite a disenfranchised age group. Um, it's hugely important that we are also act as advocates for them. That's a perfect setup for what my next question was going to be is what led you to focus on this age group? Um, so so our research is uh, based very heavily on the um, theory of developmental origins of health and disease, the DOHAD um, agenda, which you've discussed in a previous podcast. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, <laughs> our, our research unit is in some ways the, the home of the DOHAD um, research field. So I don't know um, if Olga told you about the Barker hypothesis. Yes. So the Barker hypothesis is basically that um, the dietary um, influences and environment, environmental influences, both maternal and so both from the mother and the father, um, whilst uh, a baby is in utero, mm -hmm. affects their lifelong health trajectory and how likely they are to develop um, diseases like heart disease and diabetes and obesity later in life. The, um, the man behind the hypothesis, David Barker, is, um, was the director of our unit. Oh, wow. And, and, uh, and my boss is his daughter. <laughs> so we're the OG. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, so, that's cool. uh, so the research that I'm involved with, um, the principal investigators on it are Professor Mary Barker and Professor um, Hazel Inskip. So we're basically the Dohad people, mm -hmm. I guess. I don't know if I'm officially allowed to say that, but um, <laughs> so that's essentially the starting point for our research. And from our perspective, um, adolescence is the key um, life stage at which these maternal and paternal influences begin, really. And um, so increasingly research is showing that Moms and dads' um, lifestyles and dietary behaviors and physical activity behaviors, even before they conceive, is then going to influence their future children. And um, and adolescence is basically considered um, a key preconception stage in life. So the the lifestyle behaviors that they develop in adolescence will carry out into their adulthood. And if they have poor health in adolescence and poor behave poor health behaviors in adolescence, they're likely to have those when they become adults and one day have children. So by focusing on adolescence at a time in life when they're also undergoing huge changes physically, um, hormonally, neurocognitively, this is um, just such an important key kind of life stage um, to be making this sort of, uh, well, to be providing this sort of support. They, um, they will be the parents of the future and that's why we're focusing on adolescence. Um, and the fact that this life stage is marked by so much change and so much turbulence actually for the adolescents themselves <laughs> yeah. is just an interesting, you know, a, a cherry on top of the cake. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's really fascinating. There's, I know there's a few diagrams I've seen that are interesting that, um, so with DOHAD and the influences in utero and, then you start to think about preconception, which is a hard, a hard thing to define because um, 
you don't know really what the pure conceptive what the preconceptive period is until conception happens. Mm. Um, so it's hard to give it a time frame, <laughs> but essentially, as soon as people decide that they're going to, you know, become pregnant, um, or decide that they're going to conceive, and but then you don't also you just don't have to decide. Sometimes it just happens. So mm. um, then you start working your way back, and then yeah, adolescence is kind of the the immediate uh, uh, life period right before or in the preconceptive period. And then you just, just, you kind of go in this loop of it's Dohad is during or in utero, but then before there's preconceptive, which is essentially adolescence or twenties, thirties. But yeah, it's an interesting, there's a few diagrams I think on that, that were really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So I think originally Dohad was sort of conceptualized as from uh, pregnancy to later life. That was the original sort of trajectory that was being examined. And as the research has developed, it's, you know, this, it's it, it sort of started to shift. And so it's a question of, is it, um, is it from birth? To the birth of the next generation is it from adolescence to the adolescence say stage of the next generation but it doesn't really matter where you start mm-hmm. um because ultimately the point is that that we're trying to increase the likelihood um of the next generation being a healthier one and having better prospects mm-hmm. um, and for us it's just that um adolescence is an obvious stage at which to start this work mm-hmm. and if there was a study that you could do next or what what are some um either with this dohad hypothesis in mind or mm. just anything else like what are some other studies that you're thinking about or might be involved in next or the, that you would want to do next um so many ideas uh, yeah. so uh my the my personal um focus in this work really is how do we make sure that our health interventions align with adolescents' own values and priorities? And so for me, it's about what exactly is motivating to them and drives their behavior. Um, most of our mm, mm, sort of traditional um, interventions are very much focused on goal setting and planning and you know providing health information, all of which um, is important but all of which also assumes that A, they don't already, they don't know what healthy means. And B, once they do know what healthy means and why it's important to be healthy, they will immediately be motivated to do it. And both of these are not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so based on the the many, many, many discussions that I've had with adolescents in HB, they know what healthy means. They know they should be eating vegetables and fruits and they know they should be, you know, being active and not eating junk food and sitting in front of the TV. They know that all of this and they know that the repercussions of that is avoiding diabetes in the future and being healthy when they're grown ups. But that isn't what's important to them in the here and now. So not only are they not ignorant about it, they um, they are they're, they're also motivated by other things. So for me, the question is, what are what are the big motivating factors for them and how do we um, use those or harness those when we design health interventions um, to support them in changing behavior? So 
with EHB, we've started this work, but my interests in the future are to extend this work with other things. So, uh, so as I mentioned, I'm currently involved in this project to do with climate change and diet and seeing how motivating is that for young people as a catalyst for change. Mm -hmm. And the other project that I mentioned on Monday as something that I'm losing sleep over mm -hmm. is a project where I'm looking at how motivating is um, having an understanding of the role of the gut microbiome and particularly the gut brain axis for adolescents so this is quite a sciencey um, thing for them to try and comprehend but the idea is that you know if you're eating terrible things your gut microbiome is not in great shape and then that influences or can influence your um, mental well-being so just how stressed you are how anxious you're feeling how depressed you are so it can lead to sort of those sorts of symptoms and mental health um, has been raised by the young people we've worked with as something that's hugely important to them and something they're thinking about and worried about so that in itself is important to them but how would how would it be for them if they understood more about this sort of link between what they're eating what their gut microbiome is like and also and that the influence of that on how they're feeling the problem I have is that some of this research requires some creative and, and interesting methods of data collection, um, and particularly with the gut microbiome thing. The way you measure gut microbiome status is through poop samples. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not entirely convinced that the adolescents are going to be willing to do this research. So, <laughs> so the problem is, you know, in exploring these connections and the, the motivational um, power of these, these things, I'm going to have to also ask them to do some things that are a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe if they're all doing it together, that, that's motivating. <laughs> for yeah, them. so I'm kind of counting on um, the absolute weirdness and like giggle factor of it all to maybe, you know, um, get them to do it. Like it's a funny ha ha thing, you know, someone's going to want the toilet paper you've just used. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah, that's funny. That's interesting. Um, when is that something that's currently going on? Where you're so um, the climate change and diet project is going on, and um, the gut microbiome and mental health and well-being um, project is in. Um, so I'm currently writing um, an application to get funding for that project. So it's definitely in the planning stages, but um, ultimately for me, it's about finding out what exactly is motivating for them and exploring different kinds of things so it, it could be more of social influences it could be more about social justice um uh, but also to do with health and well-being things like the gut microbiome mm -hmm. so if so there's still time for that microbiome study that people have ideas on on uh on motivating adolescents to send you poop samples <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If there's anyone out there who has cracked the code and figured out how to get adolescents to provide samples um, of poop, then um, please contact me and tell me your secrets. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, one option is to pay them, obviously, and we will. We always compensate our participants, but I don't know how much money they're going to want for this. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm going to have to give them my whole paycheck. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, wow. Well, let's see. I think that's all of the things that we wanted to cover. Um, and that's a good amount of time as well, coming up on 55 minutes. It's been, it's been really good fun talking to you about this 
and um, it would be great to do a podcast again at some point in the future. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for having a conversation with me. My pleasure. It was lovely.